This is part seven of our I Believe series. So far we've looked at what we believe about Scripture, about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the atonement, about justification by faith. Tonight, the second coming. Now, what I want you to do is just allow those three words to register. And I wonder what thoughts come into your mind whenever you hear those three words the second coming it's a phrase it's a thought it's an idea that has intrigued people and captured their imagination from year for years i just want to show you four images four recent images from outside of a church context from outside a church environment that reveals the ongoing interest with this issue in the world today. In 2007, Nike used the phrase, the second coming, as central to their ad campaign launching their new Air Force training shoes. Why? Why use that phrase? Because they believe it grabs people's attention. During Barack Obama's presidential campaign a couple of years ago, this cartoon appeared and everyone knew exactly what was being said, what was being implied. Last year, 2009, this movie called Second Coming was released by KS Films. And then a few years ago, ITV produced this two-part British television drama called The Second Coming, starring Christopher Eccleston, which was hailed as some of the most thought provoking drama to be screened on British TV for years. And so this term, these three words, the second coming, is topical. It's recognisable. It appears to conjure up all sorts of images or thoughts in modern minds. But for us as a local church, for us as a community of Christians, this is in fact a core doctrine of our faith. We believe, and this is what we want to say tonight, we believe in the second coming. Or as our church uh, basis of faith declares and states, we believe in the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, advent is a familiar word. It's a Christmas word. Who can tell me a little bit of interaction? Who can tell me what advent just simply means? Sorry? Coming. Or arrival. And therefore, every December, we mark, we celebrate, we remember the very first advent. The very first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth. Now, I think it's fair to say that this first advent, Christmas, tends to fill us. And most people in our society, I know this is a generalization, but it tends to fill us and most people in our society with joy. In many ways, it's a comfortable and comforting thought to remember the first advent. We, we discuss it freely. We watch kids perform the annual nativity play. We sing the carols. We attend the services. It's by and large a safe belief to hold. It's safe to affirm that we believe in the first advent. Not very many people get hot under the collar when you declare that belief. But when it comes to the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you'll 
probably agree that that's not such a popular subject to talk about. That's not a great thought to consider for some people. It's not a comforting issue to discuss. People aren't as impressed with this idea and all that it implies. But let me ask you a question. And I don't need an answer to this, at least a verbal answer. But whenever you think of the prospect of the second coming, whenever you think of the prospect of the second advent, how does it make you feel? I want you to think of one word that expresses your honest response. Anxious. Excited. Confused. Ignorant. Scared. Fascinated. Ambivalent. Even as as Christians and as a church, I think we increasingly find this a difficult subject to address. Another question, why is that? Why is this such a tough one to talk about? I'm not sure of your background. But as I was growing up, and uh, I've been reflecting on this during the week in preparation for tonight. But there were two things that made quite an impact on me as I was growing up regarding the second coming. One was a film. The other was a song. How many people have seen A Thief in the Night? Put your hands up. Right, that is lots of people. It was a low budget 1972 movie about the second coming. Which according to one review, and I think this is pretty accurate for those who have seen it, it said it included terrible acting, poor effects, but it contained a message that was strong and persuading. Now let me be honest, see as a kid in the 70s, this film scared the life out of me. Or it scared the life into me. I'm not entirely sure which. Who's the gentleman on screen? Larry Norman. Who died a couple of years ago, 2008. What's one of his best known songs? I wish we had all been ready. Which was actually included in this movie. And it's a song that speaks about the need to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus. And it includes that line, The sun has come and you have been left behind. And again, that that song had a profound effect on me growing up within a Christian family and in a church that taught about the reality of the second coming. Now if I opened this up this evening... I am absolutely convinced that many of us would have our own incredibly interesting stories to share about what has actually shaped our understanding about this subject. What has or who has influenced our thinking regarding this key doctrine of the Christian faith? But what I want to do, based on some important and central texts, is actually reflect tonight and share and affirm some core primary, emphasise that, primary truth and issues that I believe should be embedded in every one of our lives. Now by implication what that means is that I won't be dealing with and I won't be addressing what are generally considered secondary issues. They're important, I have no doubt about that. But for me they're secondary and I realise that some people are going to leave here tonight frustrated with me and disappointed in me. 
but it's okay. I've spent most of my life with that. Uh, the first and the, the most fundamental truth or reality that I want to confirm is that, that despite how we feel and what others think of it, Jesus Christ is coming back again. We believe the Bible's clear that the second advent will occur. The predictions and the prophecies that relate to that truth and that fact are numerous. Some have said that there are 1,845 of them in the Old Testament, 318 in the New Testament. And in the words of Jesus Christ himself, he said in John 14 to his disciples, I will come back. That's what we believe. Now, what will that look like? Okay. What will that actually look like? Well, before we turn to the specifics, there's one thing that we can be very clear about. And Leonard has touched on this. It's going to be very, very different from the first advent, from his first coming. Approximately 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ arrived in almost total obscurity and weakness. He came vulnerable. And he was totally dependent in many ways. And those who saw his first coming were so few in number. It hardly caused a ripple on anyone's radar at the time. In terms of the second advent, everything is going to be radically different. It won't be obscure. It will be incredibly visual and visible. The Bible actually teaches that every eye We'll see him this time around. Revelation 1.7. Now how that will actually happen in real terms is beyond me. How will every eye see him? Secondly, Jesus won't return in weakness. But he will return with power and great glory. Matthew 25, 24-30 says that people will have this time no alternative but to sit up and take notice as they witness the return of a king. But what will this look like? Well, for me, whenever it comes to what this will look like, we enter into the realms. And I know it's a word I use a lot, but it's a word I, I like using. We enter into the realms of mystery. Because if we consider how Jesus described it, here's the image we encounter. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Lightning is one of the most beautiful and powerful displays in nature. But beyond its powerful beauty, lightning presents science with one of its greatest local mysteries. How does it work? Now, modern science knows a lot about this issue, but certain aspects still remain elusive. Back in the first century, whenever Jesus was using this imagery to convey what his second coming would be like, the sense of mystery was even more acute. It was even more real. And I don't think that's coincidental. I don't think that was accidental on Jesus' part. Jesus will come again. But what it will look like, to a very large extent, is beyond our human conception and perception so the return of Jesus is definite it's decisive it's visual, it's visible but the big question and the natural question that so many people ask is when when is this truly phenomenal event going to take place and the issue of timing has always been a conundrum and trying to estimate some kind of time frame has been the matter of much 
discussion. And yet whenever you engage with the words of Jesus again, you realize there is a certain amount of wasted time in trying to figure out an approximate date. Because on one occasion, as his disciples rescued with this, wrestled with this question, Jesus made it absolutely clear that the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And in addition, Jesus then reveals just how crazy it is to try select dates because he made it crystal clear that even he doesn't know when it's going to happen. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven nor the sun. If the one coming is in the dark, so to speak, regarding the date in question, then there seems very little point for me in getting involved in a guessing game. The one conclusion that you can take from the words of Jesus, and I'll tease this out a little bit more in a moment, but the one conclusion you can take from the words of Jesus is that it could happen at any moment. It is imminent. And therefore, the key challenge, this is the key challenge for me, is you've got to watch. And you've got to be prepared. Again, I'll come back to that. But before we leave the time and issue, let me add a couple of things. The first is that whenever the gap between the first and the second advent widens. In other words, while we wait for the second coming to occur, many people get increasingly sceptical. Or even dismissive that, listen, this is never going to happen. And it was the case As early as the end of the first century, never mind our context two millennia later, the Apostle Peter encountered this mindset in AD 65-68 as he identified scoffers who were saying, listen, where is this coming Jesus? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so people were thinking, listen, this thing that you say Jesus promised would would happen hasn't. And therefore, the way we think in our context today, or many people think, is, listen, it's unlikely that it ever will. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still here. Life, as we know it, still just rolls on. And it's at this point that Peter's observation on God, I find incredibly helpful, although slightly frustrating. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years And a thousand years is like a day. So in other words, as we sit here in March 2010, a week hasn't even passed since the first advent. And therefore, skepticism regarding any sense of delay is actually very dangerous. The other issue with time that I just want to highlight is, it's one we're all familiar with. That if we don't know and we won't know the exact when... Then in the words of the disciples, what will be some of the signs? What will be the sign of your coming, Jesus, and the sign of the end of the age? In other words, give us some indicators that your return, Jesus, is impending or it's close. And in response, Jesus refers to, some would say, many things. And he goes into considerable detail, things like wars, rumors of wars, famines, disturbances in the natural order, increased persecution. The Apostle Paul, he picks up the sign issue as he refers the Thessalonian Christians to certain indicators regarding the day of the Lord. And then Revelation, uh, developing Old Testament imagery, particularly from the book of Daniel, appears to unfold the developments leading up to the second coming. 
And for years, as different people have engaged with these references in these texts, and as they have attempted to read the signs of the times, including our own times, they find that there are connections. And there are those who have been convinced at various stages in history that to borrow Paul's phrase to Timothy, we find ourselves living in the last days. Or some would say the last of the last days. And I don't want to stand up here and knock those who have invested a lot of time and energy into these kinds of investigations or who feel passionate about end times. But I do think that certain factors indicate that caution is required. And I say it's at this point that I know I'm going to frustrate some people. And the first is that the phrase the last days can be very easily misunderstood because in a very, very real sense, every day between the first and the second advent can and should be considered as being part of the last days. Peter addressing the crowd in Jerusalem on the first Pentecost, he quoted the prophet Joel when he recalled how God had promised that he was going to pour out his spirit on all people when? In the last days. That happened 2,000 years ago. That's when, in a sense, the last days kicked off. And here they are, and we continue in them today. The secondary cautionary factor relates to something I said a moment ago, that according to Jesus, a key aspect of the second advent is going to be its unexpected arrival and occurrence. Therefore, no study, no speculations of the signs will or should remove the sense of surprise. And as Paul reminds his readers, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's not something you can expect to happen. It's going to come without warning. It's going to come without, in a sense, prediction. And the third cautionary note regards experience to date. And I know this is possibly a weak factor, but I think it's worth highlighting that over the centuries, many sincere and genuine people have believed that the signs identified in Scripture were being fulfilled in their lifetime. And therefore the end of the world as they knew it was just around the corner. But it wasn't. And we're still here. We're still between advents. And so to be dogmatic or adamant or to become preoccupied with the signs and estimated timetables is potentially unhelpful. But so is, and please hear me on this, what is also really unhelpful is to be apathetic, to be indifferent, or in any way to be blasé about these issues. Because this is serious. If we actually believe Jesus is coming back, then there are huge implications for that. I do believe there is actually a very definite and clear way to approach this reality. The fact that Jesus is coming back. And I'm going to look at that in a moment. But what I want to do before we get there is touch briefly on why is Jesus coming back? What's the purpose of his second advent? And here I want to borrow three reasons from one writer based on his reflections of scripture. 
and then add another. So I'm going to give you four reasons why Jesus comes. It's, it's not all the reasons there are, but it's four key ones. And the first is this, to complete the work of redemption. Now, p- please hear what I'm going to say, because I, I know that some of you are thinking, hold on a wee minute. Thinking back to the start of this service and how Leonard led us about how it was complete, that Jesus has said it is finished, and yet you're now saying that one of the reasons Jesus is coming back is to complete the work of redemption. Are we contradicting one another? What I'm not saying is that in any way Jesus' first coming was inadequate, that he somehow didn't quite complete what he came to do. In fact, if I was to stand up here and say that, that would verge on heresy. When Jesus returns, he will implement the victory that he won decisively during his first coming. At that point, the point of the second advent, all God's enemies, sin, death, and the devil, will be removed once and for all from God's world. And you can read about that, about sin's defeat, about death's defeat in 1 Corinthians 15, and you can read about Satan's ultimate doom in Revelation 20. But in addition, this will be the time, this will be the moment whenever Jesus takes us to be with him forever in that prepared place that he talks about in John 14. I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. As we just sang a moment ago, then... Face to face, we shall meet. Why is Jesus coming back? To complete the work of redemption. Secondly, to resurrect the dead. And in a sense, I don't want to say an awful lot about this other than just quote scripture. All who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And that's strong. And that's the type of verse that for many people is very uncomfortable. And actually offensive. But it takes us to the third reason why Jesus is coming back to judge. The idea of Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead. Again, it's explicitly taught in God's word. All of us will have to give an account of our lives before Jesus. That is a sobering prospect. And then fourthly, to introduce a new heaven and a new earth. There's so much more I could say, or maybe should say about that. But we'll look a little at that next week as we consider what we believe about heaven and hell. So how should we actually live in light of this doctrine? Because in a sense, that for me is what's really, really important. Like what we believe has got to impact how we behave. So how do we live as we walk out these doors tonight in light of this doctrine? Well, for me, there are at least four right responses. Again, it's not an exhaustive list. Here they are. Be prepared. Pursue holiness and live in hope. Now, back, in the, back in the summer, those of you who were here will remember that we looked at a number of the parables that Jesus told. And the very last one that I considered was the parable of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. Five of whom were foolish, five were wise. But the determining factor was that the five wise ones 
were prepared for the bridegroom's delayed arrival. And it may seem that Jesus' second coming, second arrival, is delayed. That's how many people look at it. But the critical issue is not so much when is it going to happen, but more importantly, will we prepare for its inevitable occurrence? Will we be prepared? And referring back to the song that I did mention earlier, it does... It does express a very honest and genuine desire. A a desire that I know this church has. I wish we had all been ready. Because to be unprepared in many ways doesn't bear thinking about. (coughs) Secondly, pursue holiness. Let me just read you some verses from 2 Peter chapter 3 that talks about the day of the Lord. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, says Peter, what kind of people ought you to be? It's a great question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and you speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As one Bible commentator has written, and I find this so helpful, we must never forget, as Peter makes clear in verse 11, that biblical eschatology, eschatology, one of those technical words, that simply means the study of the last things or a belief in the final things such as the second coming. We must never forget that biblical eschatology is to stimulate in believers a holy and a godly lifestyle. In other words, in light of the second advent and the world's end as we know it, we must pursue a blameless and holy life. That's what we are called to do. That's why the choices I make as I walk out here tonight matter. That's why the decisions I take are important. The words that I use, the attitudes I hold, the thoughts I entertain, the things I will do this week are important because our God-given scriptural mandate for living now in preparation of Jesus' imminent return is total devotion and complete dedication to God. It's why Peter wrote earlier to the Christians. He said, listen, be holy as God is holy. That's how you should live your life. That's how you should live in light of the imminent return of Jesus. And for me, the challenge I face as I reflect on this doctrine is to get preoccupied with holiness. Thirdly, live in hope. Verse 13 there, Peter says, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And the second coming is going to bring about the promise of that reality. Hope, and we've said this before, it's not simple optimism, it's not wishful thinking. True hope, biblical hope, God-given hope, lives or rests on the promises that we find in Scripture. God has promised a new heaven and a new earth. And here's what we can hope for. And this is what, this is what drives and Leonard mentioned this, or referred to some of this as an introduction. Here's what we can look forward to with great hope and confidence. A complete end to all injustice and oppression. 
A complete end to all the evils of this world. A complete end to all disasters and hostility. A complete end to all sadness and dysfunction. A complete end to all brokenness and tears. A complete end to all heartache and pain. And the list goes on. You see, whenever Jesus returns, he introduces a brand new day. And finally, we pray. And if you were here this morning, I know many of you were. I was struck by something Andrew said as he commented on, on Genesis 18. He said that Abram's response to impending judgment was passionate intercession. Abram's response to impending judgment was passionate intercession. And as Abraham reflected on what lay ahead for many people, it drove him to his knees. And Jesus is coming back. And as I say, the implications of that are huge and they are eternal and they are serious. But the question is, in light of that, if I truly believe that, is prayer not the most important response? As I think of family and friends and colleagues who are not prepared who are not ready, who are not living holy and godly lives. We believe in the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the words of one of the final phrases of Scripture, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.